Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an Hofer sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Welcome back to the Third Reich History Podcast. I'm Chris. I have returned. And of course, uh, we, we would like to extend our congratulations to the newly minted Dr. Christopher Osmar, latest of the historical profession. That's right. Insert soundtrack of cheering here. <laughs> I, I've escaped from the dissertation dungeon. It's done. Victorious. Uh, if any... Acquisition editors out there are looking for a, a hot new book. Get a hold of me. You're too humble. More, I, I'm reliably informed. More than successful, but triumphant. And excited, excited to do an episode, hopefully in the near future, actually going through the bleeding edge research on the Third Reich now. That's right. I'd be excited to do something like that, and I, I think we should. It's always more fun to talk about your own stuff, right? Master and Commander. So, what is on the docket for today? All right, today we're going to be talking about the Ministry of the Interior, in particular, the Ministry of the Interior at the end of the war after Himmler assumes control of the ministry. And I, I think we're going to get into some questions about Himmler's vision of the state, uh, how he uses control over the Ministry of Interior to pursue that vision, about Himmler's role at the head of not just this, but many different agencies as he acquires more and more positions uh, at the end of the war. And uh, the importance of kind of the, the demographic makeup of the Ministry of Interior and how that changed, how important was a person's uh, political credentials, their relationships, their competence in a job when you get down to this crisis at the end of the war. And this, this really sort of picks up the thread. It jumps ahead a few years, but follows up really on the confrontation between Frick and Himmler that we've discussed in some of the previous episodes about sort of the foundations of Gestapo power and how the police administration really slips the bounds of ministerial oversight and then becomes a power unto itself with ministerial power of ministerial decision within the Ministry of the Interior. We're, we're really jumping ahead here after the 1943 crisis period with the Battle of Stalingrad and the, the turning of the tide, perhaps rather than the collapse of the German war effort, as the Second World War begins to turn against Germany, Himmler actually replaces his former boss, Frick. So this is sort of the conclusion of the story about who is going to control administration of state power domestically against Germans. So... Yeah, but we're perhaps getting ahead of ourselves there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I think a little bit. Let's talk a bit about the, the Ministry of the Interior as an organization. I think that it's significant that when Hitler came to power in 1933, the Nazis only had 
two cabinet positions outside of Hitler. One of them was Frick as the Minister of the Interior, and the other was Goering, who was the Prussian Minister of the Interior. So this was a position that was important to National Socialists uh, early on, uh, largely because the Minister of the Interior had a good deal of say over the police. Yeah, whoever had control over the Ministry of the Interior had not only control over the police, such as the powers were constructed in 1933, they also had control over the administration of state governors, the parallel state and federal administration structure of the German states still ran through the Ministry of the Interior. So it was one of Hitler's demands that if he was going to be put into the chancellery as the compromise candidate in 1933, that, of course, Wilhelm Frick would be brought along into that cabinet and given control over this vital ministry, this, the Ministry of the Interior. And then the Ministry of the Interior would champion the centralization of the right government by taking away some of the, the powers of the, the German states to act on their own accord. So while Frick would be the Minister of the Interior and would lead the ministry, an important figure underneath him, his deputy, Wilhelm Stuckart, would become even more important as the war progressed. And Stuckart, I think, is a, a pretty interesting character. He was deeply involved in some of the nastiest things that the Nazi regime did. And his career path really fits in with the model of what a high Nazi official tended to go through. So he had been involved in the Freikorps during the Weimar Republic, participating in Freikorps von Epp. And have we talked about Epp on this podcast? We have not. He's a fascinating character. I think I'm leaning towards a biography of Epp for my second book. He'd fought in the colonies. Uh, he had led a unit in the First World War, got a knighthood, came back to Germany, led the Freikorps, took over Bavaria, destroying the Bavarian Soviet Republic. And you know, like he gave Himmler and Heydrich their first jobs. I think he had Hitler on his payroll. for Anyway, a fascinating character. Stuckart is another one of these uh, future prominent Nazis that served under Epp uh, in 1919 in the Ruhr in Freikorps Epp. Uh, and then he would join the party in 1922, so very early on. But uh, after the Beer Hall Putsch, he left the party, got a doctorate in law, and became a district court judge. Now, at the time, if you were a judge, you could not be active in politics. So he didn't go back into the Nazi party, but he did join the SA and the SS. And he also had his mother join the party to kind of be him by proxy within the party since he couldn't personally be involved. Once the uh, National Socialists seized the reins of government, uh, he came into the Ministry of Interior in 1935, and he would be Frick's deputy. And in the Ministry of Interior, he was involved in some of the, the big moves that the ministry made. Uh, like he helped to write the Nuremberg Laws the Nuremberg Laws, of course, laying out the structure of how you're going to define who is a Jew and what their role in society is supposed to be, citizenship, relationships with Germans and with non-Aryans. Uh, and he, he was involved in the drafting of those laws. 
Uh, he also uh, helped to put together what would become the, the T4 program, or the policy, the legal grounding for the euthanasia policy in 1939. And his own son, who had Down syndrome, was killed during the course of the euthanasia program. And beyond that, he, he was involved quite directly in the Holocaust as well. He represented Frick at the Vansay conference, was, was there in the room while this discussion was happening uh, as to what the final solution to the Jewish problem would be. So deeply involved from the beginning. We have this article today that is looking at what happens in the Ministry of the Interior after this point, which we've discussed on previous episodes as sort of one of these jewels in the crown of states that, that really regulates the relationship between state and society. As Stuckert's biography points out, Jewish policy as Himmler's involvement under Frick uh, in, in the organization of policing points out, especially within the context of Nazi Germany, more than just policing, but really all security policy. Although, you know, it's worth pointing out that we should just say right now, the period that we're going to be talking about is after August of 1943. But in the run up to the change in control of the Ministry of the Interior, uh, it actually had lost a lot of power. You know, it was only nominally in control of the police at that point. Uh, there had been a lot of these other plenipotentiary positions set up that kind of usurped some of the power of the Ministry of the Interior. But it was all the same, still a very important institution that had been directly involved in drafting these these big important policies, particularly Jewish policies. Yeah, powers of the Ministry of the Interior had definitely atrophied under Frick in spite of the successful centralization and federalization of state powers underneath the actual federal ministry. What ended up happening was, like you say, the parallel administration, overlapping competencies. Either you get people like Himmler who just break away directly and are only nominally involved, or you get overlapping competency with party organizations and the, the entire political structure of the party, what in 1934 was called the, the party-state divide, and always papered over, but ultimately resulted in the party assuming many of the responsibilities that had previously sat with the Ministry of the Interior. So a good example of this is, say, local administration, municipal administration. Technically, all of these sort of municipal administration bodies are creatures of the larger state government. And so after centralizing state governments into the national ministry, then you would think that would give Frick this immense control over the appointment of administrators down to the local level. But instead, what happened de facto was that the Nazis created uh, their own ministry or their own office, not a ministry, an agency, really, the, the Central Office for commu Communal Politics, which was responsible for ensuring that mayors and district administrators came from a politically reliable background. So in effect, political institutions would take control over what previously had belonged to the state administration and the civil service proper. And this had, as Chris points out, gone to a great extent by 1943. So what, I guess, is the point of this article? <laughs> <laughs> All right, but things changed. There's a big shift in August of 1943, and the entire ministry is handed over to Himmler. What's the context leading up to this? Right, I think the why question is, is important here. So what was the event that precipitated 
Himmler's appointment as the new Ministry of the Interior? And why why was Frick given the boot? I think it's your turn. Okay. Because, like, I just rattled on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, but yeah, like, what, what is the context leading up to Frick's replacement with Himmler? Okay, as I understand it, the big event that precipitated this change was not something that happened in Germany, but something that happened in, in Italy, that um, Mussolini uh, faced a challenge to his position at the head of the government and would be arrested and then rescued heroically to come back and, and lead his country from the north. But this was a signal to Hitler as to what could happen. Because remember, Hitler was, was terrified of, of some kind of stab in the back. And if it could happen to Mussolini, then it could happen to Hitler as well. Hitler trusted Himmler very deeply. And he gave him the Ministry of Interior really to help protect himself and to protect the regime. Because Himmler's task here was to prevent popular unrest and to further mobilize force to pursue the war so that Hitler and his government would not face the same challenge that Mussolini had. Yeah, he comes in with this really two-part mandate. One, ensure that domestic security is maintained, that no stab in the back happens, because, of course, by looking at Italy, Hitler is having his nightmare unfold before his eyes of a second 1918 that leading Nazis have been petrified of happening ever since 1939. And, of course, the whole narrative about how the First World War ended. And then on the other hand, to ensure that the war is not lost, to begin to free up resources for the broader total war push. And he comes in at this crisis moment when Mussolini is overthrown, but at the end of a remarkably bad 12-month run. The beginning of the year in 1943, the Sixth Army had been lost at the Battle of Stalingrad. You had essentially an entire army of Germany, some of Germany's most experienced troops that had been part uh, at, on the front line since Operation Barbarossa in 1941, the invasion of the Soviet Union, were encircled in, uh, in street fighting or in, in the city of Stalingrad and then captured, and then had been on the retreat basically over the course of the entire spring, and then had attempted to force a, a decisive confrontation at the Battle of Kursk, and essentially the entire tank corps of the German army had smashed its teeth in on a Soviet defense in depth who had known that they were coming prepared for it and just gutted the German tank forces. So Germany was in an extremely precarious position. And we know in hindsight that they never recovered, but they were on the back foot at this point. And the bombing war had also intensified. Uh, Around the same time, you have Operation Operation Gamora, is it, that results in the firebombing? Yeah, that's Hamburg. Yeah, created the the firestorm in in Hamburg. So at the moment that Himmler is put into office, to me, it's very clear why, from Hitler's perspective, this would be happening. At At the end of this moment, you turn once again to Loyal Heinrich, who saw you through the Night of the Long Knives, purged resistance within the party, had countered the communist menace, ensured domestic, I don't even know what the right word is. Order? Domestic order. Order is a good word, yes. All through the 1930s and then into the war. 
and then taken on these increasing responsibilities of ensuring that order was kept behind the front lines in the occupied territories. So he seems at this point to be a natural choice for taking over the Ministry of the Interior. Yeah, he's, he's equipped to handle the possibility of another stab in the back. So he knows how to preserve that order. And that's going to be job one for him as the head of the Ministry of the Interior. But another thing that, that comes out of you know, the reverses at the front is the total war drive beginning in February of 1943. And that's going to be Himmler's other mandate is to use the Ministry of the Interior as, as far as he can to fortify Germans' fighting strength. And one of the things that Himmler would, would do is, that, is just throw people out of the ministry and they get drafted into the Wehrmacht and go off and fight. That's not going to be a significant addition to Germany's fighting forces, but that is the level of desperation that they're at at this point, that they're trying to scrape any resources together that they can get in order to fight. But as far as why did Hitler look to Himmler, I think that Himmler's reputation is important. But I think we also have to ask to what extent was Himmler angling for this position because this is the beginning of a period where Himmler is going to start accruing all kinds of different positions. I mean, he already had a lot of titles, but he, at the end of 1942, had secured an agreement that got him involved in, in the war economy so he could start sending concentration camp prisoners off to businesses to work there. Here in August of 1943, he picks up the Interior Ministry. Uh, after the 20th of July assassination attempt, he gains control of the home army. And then in October of 1944, he gains control of all the prisoners of war. And then he becomes the commander in chief for the army group Upper Rhine and commander in chief for army group Vistula. This is the beginning of, of Himmler's move to just grab as many positions as he can get. And I expect that he had a role in his appointment as well, that, that Hitler didn't just go to him and appoint him. Yeah, I would have been interested to know, it doesn't really come across in this article. Why now? Why now for Frick? Well, I mean, the timing is clear, but what is Himmler going to be able to accomplish at the head of the Ministry of the Interior that he can't already accomplish for domestic security as the chief of German police and Reichsführer SS in charge of the Reich security main office? I don't understand what the what the advantage of the merging of the offices here is. Well, and I'm I'm just kind of kind of guessing here, but it may have been to subsume the Ministry of Interior under the head of the police, uh, whereas it had legally been the other way around for the entirety of the Third Reich. Well, from Himmler's perspective, I understand because this this essentially realizes a long-standing goal that he's had, right? What's that? Well, if you look at both Wilt's research and you look at the Longerich biography of Heinrich Himmler, he has this long-standing goal of creating an SS state protection corps. And so the point is not that the police and it, so we this gets into sort of like his his ideology which is a separate point to worthy of discussion here, but that Internal administration should be melted together, is the word that is used, verschmolzen, into an SS state protection corps, 
who bears responsibility, both in a proactive sense for realizing and creating the order, sort of fulfilling the goals of Volksgemeinschaft or helping create this political mission of, of a people's community, as the Nazis define it, as well as unifying the powers of responsibility under a, quote, soldierly administration. So this is Himmler's core idea of a, a fighting administration, uh, civil, a soldierly civil service. It, it, and it, it's, it, it's interesting. Like he calls it literally uh, soldierly officialdom who are decisive, who show initiative, who draw all of these, who, who are essentially just drawn from the military. They're essentially soldiers first who then take that mentality into civil administration. And they're supposed to be generalists. That's the problem that Himmler has uh, and Heydrich has with the lawyers, is that they're specialists, that they just know the law. What Himmler wants are people that understand the holistic picture, that uh, have embraced the National Socialist worldview and know it from different angles. And not just that they recognize it from different angles, but that they aren't constrained by formalism in the same way as lawyers. That's the other major critique. Yeah. And I mean, that goes all the way back to 1938 and sort of Best's breaking point with Heydrich is about the open publication of Apologia of the Lawyers, where he says, essentially, no, what we need are people who have legal training, who are sort of infused with this, like, ethnic sense of values, but they still need to be able to wield the law. They just need to be able to write and interpret the law in a way that corresponds to the popular will. Whereas Heydrich is falling back on, we interviewed Paler about him. Schellenberg? Schellenberg. Schellenberg is the one who writes the brief on behalf of Heydrich, who puts forward the proposal that no, we need a bunch of generalists who go through political science, history, anthropology, you know, some law. But the point is that the civil administration should be melted into the SS State Protection Corps. The SS should not be, I think what it is, it's like a, a civil service talk shop is what he calls it. So, and, and I mean like this, so this is at the core of how Himmler, one, it's an idea that comes out of discussion between his deputies and his deputy, deputy's deputy, um, who about how the SS should approach policing. But these are ideas that emerge from the idea of what a sort of central security agency, really, that marries intelligence collection with counterespionage and civil and political policing, or criminal and political policing. It's worth pointing out that Best, Best more or less won that standoff, and the RSHA would wind up being staffed with a whole lot of lawyers, but that discussion replays itself after Himmler takes control of the Ministry of the Interior in the Ministry of Interior. Well, I think that's what's really interesting and it's always kind of been confounding to me about the creation of the Reich Security Main Office is because although Heydrich accepts Schellenberg's brief and puts it forward and Himmler prefers the idea of a soldierly civil service rather than lawyers who should be, and, you know, lawyers should be advisors and they've, they're up jumped from their original position as counselors. They've become sort of, you know, and they're all formalists like this whole sort of anti-civil service 
attitude that is expressed rhetorically and officially, that is the position that wins. But de facto, it is like you say, SS lawyers. There's there's a lot of academic, so it's it's still only sixty percent, right? But it is still the majority who come from some type of legal training. But I mean, a lot of them are sort of like engineers. Uh, doctors of humanities of different disciplines and things like this as well. And they do generally wind up being pretty firmly convinced of Nazi ideology. Yes. They can act as the generalists do as well. So they, they are kind of best of both worlds. Yeah. So, but it, it, it's funny though, because officially best loses and that's why he gets sent away first to the Rhineland. And then he ends up in, in I, I forget if it's Norway or Denmark in the, the occupation administration there because he goes out in public and says, no, 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 we need these ethnic, ethnically minded nationalist lawyers. And he gets shot down and like sent into forced retirement almost over that. And that, but then that's ultimately his view ends up prevailing. But it, this is like you say, a, a discussion that plays out again as Himmler takes over. But, but I mean, my point of raising this here is just to say that what Himmler, it's it. So the article suggests that Himmler is unsystematic and unstructured in his ideas and his thinking, pointing toward these ideas of Germanization. But then, when when you backtrack and you look at the ideas that his deputies have put forward about what it, how police administration should function, what values it should embody, and the larger goal of an SS state protection corps. Those, those ideas are all taken forward into his takeover of the Ministry of the Interior. Okay, let, let's get down to it then. Uh, what did Himmler change once he took control of the ministry? What was his mechanism for changing the way, potentially changing the way the ministry operated? Uh, well, I don't know that he was that involved. And certainly the article seems to suggest that he followed a similar approach to policing where he as head of ministry, just as he as head of agency or um, I, I forget what his official position is, but as chief of German police, he would use Hitler's Menschenführung style of leadership that he would outline a set of principles and general guidelines and then leave his subordinates remarkable leeway in how to attain those goals. Yes, and then his most important subordinate in the interior ministry would be the Stuttgart character that we talked about earlier, who had been the one of two state secretaries for the interior ministry. And after Frick gets the boot to get, get replaced by Himmler, Stuttgart remains as a state secretary. But because Himmler has this kind of hands-off approach, uh, Stuttgart winds up being able to make most of the, the most important decisions and becomes the de facto minister of the interior. Right. But that's what's interesting as well, right? Because this is, this is very like, let's, let's look at the character of Stuttgart for a minute about what his ideas about administration are, because the idea of an SS political science and the people that he's rubbing shoulders with in developing the ideas of how to administer the ministry of the interior are, are really fascinating to me. So Stuttgart's overall understanding of what the role of the ministry should be, what's critical of over-bureaucratization 
of the state. The idea being that if the bureaucracy is too heavy, it paralyzes the whole state. And that instead, an SS state of action could achieve the goals of national socialism. That the letter of the law wasn't as important as the will of the people or popular law. Very much proceeding from this same populist wellspring of legitimacy. Like, I I see almost a one-for-one parallel, again, in the way that Himmler and Heydrich and Best end up discussing the role of the police in administration. I think that's why Stuckert ends up getting so much free reign here, is because essentially, and I'd also like to point out, Stuckert is at the conference when Himmler delivers his speech about a new code of law and defining what what a German police is and what a what a German administration is in 1936 Stuckert's at that conference why don't you tell us tell us briefly what the content of that conference was what might Stuckert have taken away from it so key points are uh, it, it's it's generally focused on because that's where Himmler begins his his campaign against homosexuality that's where he first announces that but it's also one of it's his first public appearance as the chief of German police. So separate from the narrative of persecution of homosexuals in Nazi Germany, I think that the most important thing that comes out of that speech from a policy perspective is that Himmler gets up and he says, we need to develop a new form of German policing. And so he goes through this brief history of uh, sort of the idea of liberal policing as emerging from lawyers who are obsessed with uh, fulfilling the laws as established by little princelings. And instead of this, what there needs to be is policing that expresses the will of the people. And Hans Frank gets up. And Hans Frank is the head of the Academy of German Law, who are sort of a legal think tank in Nazi Germany. And Hans Frank gets up and he says, oh, well, wouldn't it be great if you've got all society moves so fast in the modern day, and you got all this stuff happening. What if police had their own form of judicial competency? He calls it an Ordnungsrecht or a Polizeigerichtsbarkeit, which is essentially saying that what if you gave police the power to essentially be judge and jury in, in these, as he calls it, crimes of everyday life that it does not pay to take through an orderly criminal process, a so-called orderly criminal process. And Himmler, in his part of his speech, says, you know what? I really like this idea from Hans Frank. We need police who are thinking, men of the world, who have a healthy understanding of human nature, who don't feel bound by the letter of the law. Uh, he literally opens a speech by saying, "My our opponents uh, called what we did lawless because it did not fit their conception of law. In reality, we laid the foundation for a new code of law. We just got to make sure that the police don't end up making too many decisions. But you're right. There is all this stuff that just doesn't pay to take through this lengthy, overblown political process. And it can be dealt with much quicker and much more effectively in other ways. So that's basically the same thing that he says when he takes over the, the, the Ministry of the Interior and so this is his theory of German policing, right? And he says, we need the same thing. We need a, we need a German, German administration, right? Rather than, now it's not just German police, it's German administration. But it functions along the same lines. That would be an administration that's responsive to the will of the people rather than to the letter of the law. Well, 
Yes, but in the Nazi worldview and the Nazi conception of people's community. The, okay, yeah, the, the will of the people's community. Yeah. <laughs> you're right, but it's not like populists who say we need to listen to the people. It's not like a democratic populism. It's an authoritarian populism who says that the leadership, Hitler is like the tuning fork of the German people, and he just happens to be singularly in in line and have a, a singular understanding of the will of the people. And so we listen to leadership because they're the one, they're the only ones who can divine that will. Right, right. They, there's kind of this idea that the will of the people, if it's not you know, corrupted by some outside influence, will be what national socialist ideology is saying. Right. Everything that disagrees with national socialist ideology is in fact alien. Right. And is therefore not the will of the people. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Because the leadership understands the true will of the people that has been silenced by liberalism and communism uh, or muted or, or uh, I don't know, degenerated, debased. Anyway, and, and so like he says the same thing when he gets up in front of the Ministry of the Interior. He says that the goal, the goal of the, um, where is this nifty little quote here? Because this was, this like, there are so many stars in the margins next to this, Chris. Uh, da -da 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 -da. To educate the doubtful, strengthen the faltering, and counter the malicious with energy and bring them to a just punishment. And that is essentially what he lays out at the speech in 1936. He, he, he doesn't lay that out. He says, we need to give the police the power to make decisions. And then his deputies lay out that sentiment in articles and in directives over the next few years. And then he, when he takes over, he, he expresses it exactly, this idea of educating the doubtful, strengthening strengthening the faltering and punishing the wicked, right? People who are acting with malicious intent. So there's this Einfühlung approach of acting as uh, as friend and helper. Yeah, he says that the, the civil service should be friends of the people. Right? Yeah. And like, this is this is the direct one for one. Mm -hmm. Sorry, sorry. Excited. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, the, the connection is, is there. It is a direct parallel. It's the same idea applied in... in two different arenas. So this is going in the conclusion of my book because I, because I think it's important. It's quite interesting, right? Because it shows how influential policing is in determining what, what become the core concepts about how the relationship between state and society functions. Well, either that or the core concepts influence policing, you know, you know, when you're thoroughly in something, it's easy to see it as the cause of everything else, but you know, they may all just stem from the same common cause. Well, I don't know, though, because these ideas are the ones that are articulated by his deputies. It's discussion about what policing is supposed to look like in the Nazi state, right? If we get rid of liberalism, what replaces that, right? And what is that, what is that supposed to look like? And it's, that's the discussion that happens in the mid-30s. And then it's picked up by Best and Hadrick and turned into policy. Yeah, but at least, at least to me, it seems like the policy, the policing policy is coming out of ideology about how the community and the state should interact and so is this approach to the interior ministry i don't get the sense that himmler's modeling the interior ministry on the police i think that they're both responding to the national socialist worldview right but it's a very particular articulation okay. like himmler's articulation is based on what his subordinates hash out about what the role of the ss and the role of an ideological elite within that state is. 
And they're in dialogue with constitutional discussions from 34 to 36 about what the role of the police is in the national socialist state, given where does political legitimacy stem from in the Nazi state? Right. Like how, why is the Nazi political leadership legitimate? What is the constitutional theory and the political theory behind that? And Stuckert's part of this kind of SS political science, as, as the author here calls it, that he ends up putting out this magazine about this. But if you look at the people, like look at the list of people that are, that are part of that editorial board, right? Like, because there's a bunch of them from police administration and the Academy of German law which is routinely dismissed as not having influenced anything. They never produce any official policy. The leadership of the Reich Security Main Office is what ends up turning a lot of theory into policy. That's what I mean to say as that the police determine these things because, you know, it's not, yes, it, they're, they're drawing upon a discussion and they're drawing from the broader ideology and where the ideology then gets distilled into distinct theories of political legitimacy and a legitimate structuring of relations between state and society. But then when the rubber hits the road, it's Hadrick and Best who are writing the policy about what that looks like in application in everyday life. And then it's the Gestapo chiefs who are enforcing it and making decisions about, right? And the party does as well, right? But, you know, it's the same way. Like the constitution isn't hashed out until there's a challenge, right? Yeah, okay. Um, Sorry, I went through a lot of material there. (laughs) (laughs) I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is the ideology driving practice or is practice creating precedent that is elaborated on in other agencies like in the internal ministry? Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm saying that when Himmler takes over, He's taking over with ideas that are developed within policing. And, and, and I think that that's important. Well, it speaks to how contingency impacted ideology. Like you, you have an idea, you implement it in one way, you learn lessons from it, and you implement the ideology changes, and then you implement new policies that further change the ideology. How static is the idea? That, that's, that's what I'm getting at with this, with this question of, did this approach come from the police or did it come from a pre-existing coherent Nazi worldview? I don't think that it's either pre-existing or coherent. I think the only thing that's pre-existing in the Nazi worldview are Hitler's broad strokes narrative about that feed into the idea of like, we're going to create a people's community because we're trying to get back to this lost past where we have this ethical germ, true Germanness has an ethical moral sense of duty, and uh, you know everything that we talked about in the Volksgemeinschaft episode, right? But once you move beyond that, then it gets into these specific discussions about what does that look like in administration, and then within the discussion of what does that look like in terms of a legitimate administration, what does that look like in terms of policing? And it just happens that security. The security services and political policing carries a, a central importance in Nazi Germany, one, because of the capabilities of the man at the helm, Himmler, in sort of accruing power for himself, but also because they claim this place of primacy as the 
the the shapers of the community, right? Like that it's their job to educate and stamp out threats and, and create the order. So Hans Fudner, one of the guys who gets pushed out in 1937, the, the right after Himmler becomes chief of German police, puts together this kind of big celebratory edited collection for his boss called Dr. Frick and his ministry, which is all about the different uh, state secretaries in the Ministry of the Interior. And in that, uh, Himmler basically lays out his theory of policing as it's developed over the last kind of 12 months as he's centralized and taking control of things, which is two-parter. Hold on. Just to show the continuity here, and specifically in the way that Himmler articulates it. The National Socialist Police have two great tasks. A, the police are to realize the will of state leadership and create and uphold the order they desire. B, the police are to secure the German people as an organic entity, its vitality and its institutions against destruction and decomposition. The authority of a police that has set these tasks cannot be exhaustively defined. And then within the policies, there's this broader discussion about police should be friend and helper, da 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 Police should educate and recover the, those who have strayed morally in some way from German values. But I think... The party is constantly casting about for ways that it can justify its existence and kind of carry out programs and illustrate. If you look at Groa's stuff, right, and the Gao leaders and what they're directing, they're attempting to serve constituents. And the SS has this mentality, SS, and specifically the police under SS leadership has this mentality that they are there not to serve constituents, but to shape the people. I'm trying to find the list of people that he's talking about with this SS political science. So it's part of a larger discussion, and then I'll shut up about it. The people who publish the most in this particular journal, the RVL, are Werner Best, Gerhard Klopfer, and Reinhard Hohn. And so like, there's this direct connection with Best. And, and, you know, and they're showing up at the same conferences. They're both in Himmler's orbit. Stuckert is recognized as like Himmler's representative in the Ministry of the Interior against Frick, right? So if you were writing an intellectual history of Nazism and Nazi Germany, I think you would be hard pressed to say central debates do not run through an orbit of people that are around the Reichsführer SS. I'm comfortable with that. All right, let, let's take this back to the Ministry of the Interior, because because the same ideas are present there when Himmler takes control of the ministry, that the administration should be friends of the people that it should be responding to the, the will of the community and all that uh, built on the Menschenführung principle. But just as happened in this debate over generalists and specialists in the Reich Security main office, even though the line is let's aim towards generalists in practice, it was not the ideological hardliners that replaced the old guard in the Ministry of the Interior. Well, because they're already there. Lehnstadt says that it's not gutted, and that, but he's there was only there's only six SS officers in yeah. the higher reaches of the leadership of the Ministry of the Interior total. Right, but it's under direction Stuttgart of Stuckert. Sure. And uh, like I look at the way that the police administrations are run, right? Like the Gestapo, head of station and his deputy are SS men. But then all of their case officers are old Weimar guys. Lehnert's point is like, well, why didn't he come in and replace them with all these old fighters? 
right? And it's like, but then you flip ahead. And if you actually look at the statistics, the, the raw statistics about how many people are party members, just not old fighters, it's still sitting above 80%. Yeah. And that he makes the suggestion that that's because the Ministry of the Interior was more political than a lot of other ministries or, or uh, organizations um, where the percentage was much lower. I think something like 40, 40 to 60%. Well, that's lower. It's much, it's almost, do- yeah, like double uh, police that I'm aware of up until the late 30s. So, but the case he's making is that the majority of these Nazi party members in the ministry didn't join the party until after Hitler came to power. Right. But so what? Well, okay. And I think this is a question that we should ask at this point. By 1943 and after, how much does old fighter status, so having joined the party before Hitler came to power, how much does it really matter? Yeah. I mean, if you have people that, that joined the party right after Hitler came to power, they've been in the party for a decade by the time Himmler takes control of the Ministry of the Interior. In the margins here, I have another one. What about the DBV, right? Like when these people may not have joined the party right away, but then at what point did they show their support by joining the Professional Association of German Officials, right? He doesn't get into all the party associations and when people join them or what the membership in these kind of secondary ways of illustrating like the sliding scale of support to assent to party party leadership. But because like, you know, if you join the trifecta of party associate of like mass associations in 35, that's that's still a forward looking move and the most that you can do until the roles are opened again in 1937. Yes. Okay. So perhaps we can't just write off all of these people that joined late as opportunists who only joined in order to advance their career. But I do still think that you could make the case that this vision that Himmler's pushing and that, that Stuttgart uh, takes on of transforming the ministry and gearing it towards bolstering the Volksgemeinschaft uh, and um, pursuing popular law rather than the letter of the law uh, was a post-war vision. And that in 43 to the end of the war, they were just worried about keeping people that were competent in their jobs so that they could keep fighting the war. And the people that weren't competent were ejected from the administration and put in uniform and sent to the front. Yeah. What I'm saying is that I don't think it's just about them like biding their time. I think that Himmler has the rhetoric of an outsider about officialdom until he's an official and he realizes, oh, wait, 80% of you are already Nazis, right? And kind of seem to know what you're doing and I really trust this Stuckert guy and so and he gets it and like he's on the same page as my boys Hadrick and Best so run with it right like he tries he does his big effort in 43 where he's like I'm going to organize a few conferences and assert my personal administrative charisma right and like try and build these personal connections and but then he's like okay gotta go fight now bye Stuckert handle things right <laughs> Yeah, so do you think that that is still Himmler exercising his his power? Yes, I do think it is. I think that's his administration style. Yeah. yeah. And like this is portrayed by Leonard as uh, disinterest and um, sort of like 
a lack of ideological rigor. But again, if you look at who knows what the post-war goal would have been, but you're also looking at like a generational turnover of that point of like, well, we finally have people who have been raised as national socialists and gone through our political science programs and our finishing schools, right? So you're into a whole different discussion about uh, like, let alone the fact that it's a counterfactual about what that would have looked like at that point. But if you compare the way that the Ministry of the Interior shapes up, even down to the numbers about membership, like if you if you look at the way that the Gestapo takes shape in Turingen and in Braunschweig, and the stats are only up to like 35 for the Rhineland, so far as I could find, that like it's really similar. And the same discussion is there. I, I, when I was reading this, I was saying like, this is just like, this is a continuation of Generation der Unbedingten. Like this is just Wilt and this is how Himmler operates. And if you look at Stuckert and the reasons he selects him and what Stuckert stands for, it's a continuation of a particular administrative style, right? And like he hated on lawyers in his own administration, even though they were like, you know, it, that was everybody was running his police service, right? Yeah. And like they were they were self-loathing to the extent that they were like, we're not lawyers, we're a soldierly civil service, right? And I think that's the same thing that, that is happening here in the interior ministry. That once again, even though the rhetoric is for a transformation, it is the specialists that stay in their positions because they can get the job done, but they are also behaving in a way that is consistent with Himmler's goals. Yeah. They're led by a committed SS generalist yeah. who is encouraging them to be audacious. And so again, that, that was the other reason that I was saying there's, there's more of a one-to-one -one here with the police administration than Lehnert's context really allows for analysis. But I don't know. Like, I, I just don't see, I don't understand why he would be expected to just like completely overthrow the administration when he came in. Sure. Although, you know, I don't get the sense that he was even interventionist in the interior ministry. Right. He doesn't seem like he was in, involved in many ways. And, and even when he pursued the same kind of uh, strategy of control that he used in some of his other positions, he did make moves. He would come in and, and reinforce or correct the initiatives mm -hmm. of his subordinates. Uh, whereas here he does, he's hands off and he remains hands off in the interior ministry. Well, he makes a few key key personnel changes, and then he leaves it to Stuckert. Mm -hmm. And that that to me strikes very similar to the way that he manages the police. Every now and then, sort of a directive will come down, but but like Heydrich, again operates the same way as Stuckert. So and like the way that Leonard lays it out. Stuckert will... Himmler's private secretary? Yeah. Brandt? Rudolf Brandt? Yeah. Yeah, we should talk about Brandt. Because at least this article makes the case that because Himmler was often on the move, his deputy or, or the guy running the personnel office was choosing what to forward to him from the interior ministry so that he had a lot of sway in how Himmler understood what was going on. Right. Thoughts? Well, this makes it out to be Brandt kind of wagging the dog. And I wonder how motivated Brandt was to influence the way Himmler understood what was happening in the interior ministry. 
uh, or if he was just trying to reduce the workload for Himmler. This article makes the case that, that Brandt forwarded some things and didn't forward others, but isn't really clear what the difference was between what was forwarded and what wasn't. Right. I ask, how is this different from the way Heydrich administered SIPO and later the Reich security main office as Himmler's deputy? I don't know, because I don't know what, what Brandt's motives were. Structurally, then. Himmler cannot read every piece of paper that is addressed to him. Right. Somebody's going to make these decisions. Just like he can't run the police administration at the same time he's running the Waffen-SS and the occupied territories and then the extermination of the Jews, right? So leaving aside the motivational in what Brandt is doing or how Stuckert acts on behalf, again, like he says, he gets to sign as uh, in Vertretung rather than in Auftrag, im Auftrag right? So uh, deputized rather than with signatory power on a case-by-case basis. Structurally, that's the same way that Heydrich signs on behalf of the Reichsführer SS and chief of German police. So what's the significance there? Is that uh, pointing towards Himmler's MO? Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm saying. Actively creating little Himmlers? Yeah, he finds people who say pretty much the same thing and are part of an intellectual discussion where they are exchanging the same views and developing a, a, an SS political science of how, what an administration should look like. And then he gives them free reign and empowers them. Like he's not a micromanager. Sure. And I don't think that he could have been. He's, he could never have acquired so many positions if he was actually uh, doing all of the day-to-day in all of them. Yeah, I should say that he's a selective in his micromanagement and he moves from task to task. Right. As soon as he's done with chief of German police, he's on to expanding the SS. Yeah. And does some of these jobs quite poorly. He really botched army group Vistula because it was too much for him. Yeah. Uh, that's the kind of thing that, that requires more hands-on control. Yep, absolutely. But uh, just from an administrative style point of view, right? Like it's gathered under him. And like, and this is where I think that Looking at the ministry, the, the argument that Landstadt makes is that because private office of the minister is taken out of the ministry and moved to the Reich, the to the SS, Landstadt makes the argument that structurally that shows the Ministry of the Interior is second in the pecking order to the SS. And I disagree with that because I think that shows Himmler pursuing his goal of creating a larger SS state protection service that governs all of internal life. And that's where Brandt becomes involved, putting things in front of Himmler that are of significant import or acting as his deputy. Do you have a sense for if, and if so, how the actual behavior of the interior ministry changed after Himmler took control? No, not from this article. Like, do we see do we see changes in practice? No, I just thought it was interesting because it sh- it gives Himmler more power to dictate more of over life, mm-hmm. everyday life, and that is very important in managing civil defense, evacuations, policing. Part of that, like concentration of power and merging of uh, civil and military administration at the end of the war. And 
one of Himmler's long-term goals. So like, I, that's why it sort of made sense to me that like, why do you turn to Himmler? Why does Himmler accept other than that Himmler always says yes to more power. Right. But, uh, that, that it, it fulfills a longstanding goal and it fulfills it in a way that centralizes authority over a, a range, a broader range of issues. Like he can now dictate to the police and he can dictate to local administration. He can tell the mayor how to run the evacuations if he needs to, or he has people, if he favors his SS people, or he could like, he can send an order to somebody, right? And set, and it says like, Himmler has empowered me to tell you that you must evacuate this town. And if you trace the lines all the way back up to the top of the organizational chart, uh, yeah, checks out, Himmler is still the guy in charge. So the boss is saying we need to do this. So regardless of the fact that you come from a paramilitary organization of often SS, you are a policing organization that is separate from any civil administration, or, you know, God forbid, it actually comes through the, 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 the normal civil administration structure, right? We will follow this order because Himmler gave it. And so that, that to me seems to kind of coordinate, coordinate authority, if not action at the end of the war. Hmm. So even if the behavior of the ministry doesn't change it being under Himmler is important in that it is for the consolidating authority. Yeah, I think, which is important for agility during this, these frequent crisis situations, right? And I use the plural intentionally because it's often more than one cropping up at a given moment. <laughs> right? Like This has gone down a sort of like back to the obsession with the end phase and authority and decision-making and, continuities with other with other research trends but so the best stuff it is all the best stuff yes exactly <laughs> absolutely but is there are there are there any points in the article proper that we're not doing justice or more about stuckert that needs to be brought to the fore perhaps and given its due i do think that we should emphasize again that one of the major goals because we we've talked a lot about who is going to be leading the ministry? How are they going to relate to the community? Uh, but the other major goal was mobilize people for the war. Mm -hmm. And I guess that is one change in practice in the interior ministry after Himmler takes power, uh, that they clear the roles, they send out civil servants to fight instead of uh, continuing to be obstructionist bureaucrats. And, then, and that's what's most important at this point. Uh, and that's why I, I, I suggest that maybe the rest of this was kind of looking to the post-war. Mm -hmm. uh, what was most important was not losing the war at hand. But th there's also, the point is made that Stuttgart doesn't really take the war seriously until 1945, which was staggering to me. Uh, yeah, but uh, he also had his own people working for him. And uh, for example, after November of 44, uh, he has uh, a person that had been working for Goebbels in the Total War Drive, Faust, uh, and he'd wind up making a lot of the decisions uh, about personnel and policy as well. And having come, I, I think they chose him because he came from the Total War Drive uh, mm -hmm. in order to put a little bit extra punch in that part if Stuttgart wasn't really taking it serious. Yeah, we, we talked a lot about Himmler's goals and his development and why Stuttgart fits ideologically but i i guess what 
What did you get about Stuckert's administration style and his goals specifically, given that he was afforded so much leeway? Right? Like, who's he as a character? Because we talked about him, but then he just kind of, where does he fit in all this, you know? You know, I don't. it doesn't really come through in the article, um, and I'm not really clear on it myself. Yeah. That he, it seems like his his number one motivation was just getting rid of all of the people that had been close to Frick. Yep. So uh, there was an interest in maintaining his own personal power, uh, and that he did have visions for the future of Germany mm. and for building up the people's community. Uh, but you know, as far as what, what he did towards that end, once Himmler was in power, I mean, obviously the, his moves earlier on, uh, the Nuremberg Laws, uh, participation in the Wannsee Conference, all that, that, that stuff is all very significant. But what what he did after August of 43, mm. I'm not totally clear on it. Yeah. And, uh, and that, I, I think one of the core contentions to talking about sort of like subject knowledge was valued over party membership. And like what you were saying earlier, well, what does that really matter by 1943, provided you joined as soon as you could or had showed? And my question about were you showing loyalty in other ways through mass associations, right? Um, I question that because Stuckert clearly has very strong views about the importance of uh, the people's community and the role of administration in building that people's community that are very closely aligned, uh, if not one for one, but worth exploring more in terms of how they overlap with what's discussed by Heydrich and put forward by Best and are developed in dialogue with Best through this, um, this particular journal that they put out from 41 to 43 or for, 41 to 42. Anyway, short run. But yeah, I, it's just, uh, I have, I have here in the margins, Stuckert's targets, one, incompetence, two, Frick supporters. Mm-hmm. And that ministerial... Probably gaz- not in that order. Yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> ministerial Gazette, if to be believed, shows these changes were settled with no further movement by late 1944. Right? So they pick a few people. They, re- they replace a few people that are close to Funtner and other sort of within Frick's kind of orbit and they, they appoint some SS people to politically sensitive positions. Um, they clean out people who are high level, who didn't, who uh, belonged to other parties, but a political lower, lower level people who come around to Nazism are largely undertouched, undertouched, untouched and uh, high level people who, were apolitical and joined Nazism in 33 after the party came to power are left in place. So it's sort of, um, it's kind of a non, it's a tempest in a teapot when he comes to power, which is why I think it's important to focus on his ideas because if the personnel turnover isn't there, then like what's happening at the helm, right? Or in the head of the helmsman as it were. Well, and and you could also just make the argument that the, Ministry of the Interior didn't really have very much power left at that point, so they could do a lot of talking, but they couldn't do a lot of doing. Right. The goal is to reconcentrate that power, but really, it's there is that is not accomplished by the time the war has ended. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I don't know. The, the, for, for so much attention to personnel politics, it really didn't seem to... How, how closely did... The, how much did this remind you of uh, an uncompromising generation? Or like Hadrick's elite or something like that, looking at this idea of the war youth generation in administration there? I mean, the, there's a, a very thick demographic element running through it. Yeah. I, I think that that's, that's similar. And, you know... Uh, he talks about the the place of the war youth generation here and and points out that the war youth generation was much better represented in the Reich Security Main Office than it was in the Interior Ministry. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, within the Reich Security Main Office, certainly. But there still seemed to be a, a turnover of people coming in who filled that sort of who who fill who hit who ticked all of Vilt's boxes for like, you know, born from the war youth generation, uh -huh. politicized in folkish politics, active in the Fry Corps or, uh, you know, activism in the 20s, folkish activism in the 20s, right? So, yeah, I don't know. Anything else in here? I think that we've certainly done it justice, and I would dare to say that we may have even improved upon the original article. <laughs> We've juiced it and turned it into a delicious smoothie. That's correct. Right. Well, uh, we could probably leave it there then. All right. Well, it's been a joy. It's good to be back here. It is good to have you. Uh, and uh, we look forward to hearing more about your dissertation. Yeah, I'm excited. Well, that concludes this installment of the Third Reich History Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the return to discussion with Chris. I know that I am absolutely thrilled to have him back to continue working through the never-ending and bottomless well of research that exists on the Third Reich. We hope you join us next time when we'll be talking about the latest research in Nazi slave labor entitled, Now I Am in Distant Germany, It Could Be That I Will Die, which just so happens to have been published and recently defended by Chris Osmeyer, 2018. With that, I'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then. <laughs>